0: In Hebrews 2, uh, we're going to pick up with the 14th verse. And so let me ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Lord, will you uh, cause your word to bring comfort, challenge, growth? Will you apply it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit? And we would ask for this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Be seated. We are, for those of you visiting with us, in the second week of a series on the Apostles' Creed, and uh, we, we want to make it clear, we're, we're not just studying a creed, we are convinced that this creed uh, has a good summary of the basic tenets of the Christian faith, and so we are, are studying uh, the word, that are the underpinnings of uh, of what we state when we use the apostles creed we 're looking at I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. now, last week, um, because we had the this all set up for the uh, the orchestra and the presentation on uh, sunday night uh, i I was sitting. Down there, and because I was sitting down there, not I don't take it personally any of you, but uh, I was looking up this way, and I, I kind of focused on that uh, the emblem that's on the front of the pulpit, and if you can't see it from over there, it's also on the front of the 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 sound booth, which I don't know if traditional architecture says you always put that on the front of the sound booth or not. I, and so I, I was looking at that and thinking about that and, and looking ahead to, uh, to this week as well. And so I decided to study it a little bit, bit more. Um, it looks, as you look at it, uh, like an IHS, with a cross through the H. It is often called a Christogram. And uh, it is basically a monogram that symbolizes uh, uh, Jesus Christ. There are several views of what that IHS stands for. And let me just... Get, there's one that I'm absolutely going to discount and get it out of the way. The IHS does not stand for Irmo High School, okay? <laughs> I didn't want to hear that 30 times at the back door uh, today. So here are some of the views um, uh, one is that it's, these are actually uh, from the Greek, Greek letters, and they are an abbreviation for Jesus, which is the name Jesus, and it would be the first three letters, actually uh, an I-E-S. Uh, so that's one view, probably the most common um, there are some that say it's actually from the Latin and where the words would, would mean Jesus, Savior of man, the H being uh, man, so Jesus, Savior of man, and the cross going through that. Some uh, say it stands for in his service. That's way too English, and uh, I, I doubt that it's that one either. Um, but in any case, I, what I want us to, to think about, because that's what we're focusing on uh, today, is that here in the, in the front of the pulpit, at a, a central place, a place you're, uh, you're typically going to be looking, at least in our church, uh, the focus is Christ, Christ alone. Jesus Christ, who is the Savior. And that fits exactly with this second, I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. We're going to break that statement down, starting word for word with Jesus and Christ, of course, for the name Jesus, uh, that was his earthly name. It was very common in his uh, day. Uh, you might even remember that when we went through the Gospel of John, we saw that <coughs> the uh, Barabbas' first name was actually Jesus. And it was a, a common name. Partially and probably to a great degree because it's the New Testament name for the word Joshua, which has to do with Savior. And so it's likely there were mothers who were naming their children, their sons that, with the hope that their son would be that Savior. Of course, it's a fairly uncommon in our day, except among some cultures. God had told both uh, Mary and Joseph, and He told them separately that they uh, would name Him Jesus. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus wasn't known as Jesus Christ. So don't think of it as a first and and last name. Uh, In in fact, it's it's not until the early church and certainly in the epistles that he is referred to again and again, and that's how we are to make him known to the world as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Um, So that's really his uh, kind of earthly Name And he was known in, during his ministry as, as uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, but even so, his name was a fulfillment of that which he came for. Uh, this is how it was announced. Matthew 121, she, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. That's the nature of that name. By the way, when we're talking about God, you want to know the attributes of God? You look at his name. A name wasn't just something to, to call him. It was him revealing himself, and that's uh, the case here as well. And then we come to the, the name Christ. Uh, that's what J.I. Packer uh, calls Jesus' official name. Um, it's a term that means anointed one or Messiah. This is uh, the promised king from the line of David. Now, why, why that term, anointed one? Well, there's much more there. It's not just a, a name that you, you kind of brush over. When you think of anointed one, it's referring to what we see in the Old Testament. Uh, who was anointed? Well, there were three offices that were all anointed in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, priest. And king. So when when it refers to him as uh, uh, the Christ, it's alluding, it's speaking to those offices. Now, those offices had been in existence uh, all through the history for ages, but no one had fulfilled them perfectly. Um, at best. The prophets, the priests, and the kings in the Old Testament were just foreshadowing uh, that which was to come. Uh, Let's think about what we we said earlier in terms of the the prophet. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? He executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. So... um, the, The prophet was making known the will of God. So how did Christ fulfill that? Well, he fulfilled it in revealing the Father and making known God's will for salvation to the world. And he fulfilled it perfectly. And then we come to the priest how does he execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession. So there's a one-time thing which was different than than the priests in the Old Testament. They they did sacrifice this over and over and over because. Even in their best moments, those sacrifices were imperfect. Christ makes a sacrifice, and boom, that's it. Nothing else is necessary for our salvation. And then what's he, what's he doing now as our priest? He doesn't need to make any more sacrifice. So now he is interceding for us. He is representing us. So in the Old Testament, the, the priest confessed sin, and offered sacrifice for his people, but they did it over and over again. Remember what, what I read a moment ago in Hebrews 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, We'll get to that in a second. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now what about that word, propitiation? Well, as the perfect prophet, priest, and king, what Jesus did, what his actions did, what that one sacrifice that was sufficient and was never necessary to do again, turned away the wrath of God. That's what propitiation is. By his actions, by what he did on the cross, he turned away the wrath of God, and he made it so that we could be adopted into his family. That would have been impossible unless he made propitiation for the sins of his people. And then we see the king. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling, defending us, in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Uh, To put it briefly, the king is one who acts as leader and commander. Jesus fulfilled that in his victory over death And man's enemy. Now, no prophet, no priest, no king that had gone before Jesus had ever come close to fulfilling their offices fully. They were all flawed. You think it? Think about uh, a David, the, the king. Man after God's own heart. And yet what do we know about him? His deep sin, and reaping even uh, the temporal problems that came from that and having terrible family situation all of his life. So here is is perhaps Israel's greatest king, but what he did is he left a longing and a promise for a better king, the one that was to come. That one had no sin. That one was a prophet and priest as well, so he related perfectly with all of his children. In fulfilling all of those offices, in uh, Jesus is called the Christ by Peter in his confession. That's in the Gospel by the woman at the well, uh, by Andrew. Look, we found the Messiah, but in the Gospels we don't see him called Jesus Christ. That's revealed later. So I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. Look at that that phrase. Let's talk about Jesus as as son. Uh, Again, that sounds a lot like uh, he's less than God the Father. Um, It's somewhat natural uh, for us to think in terms of the Father kind of being the big big guy, you know, the powerful one, and then you got the son Who's gonna come underneath the Father? And then you got the Holy Spirit that is underneath Jesus. And if we're not careful, we're gonna think that that that's kind of the, the power, that's the totem pole. Uh, the, the top ones, the the most powerful. Now, that picture is not totally wrong, but it's incomplete. In this way, we've got to make a distinction between the roles and function of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit of the Trinity and the substance of the Trinity. Now, we're, getting, we're doing theology here, so stay with me. Um, the Shorter Catechism says this. There's one God in three persons... And they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Okay? That changes the picture of he's the big powerful one, then then Jesus is coming next, and he's maybe a little bit less powerful than the Holy Spirit. he's, He's third in line. What it's saying instead is when it comes to their substance, their being, who they are, They're all equal. And so so Jesus is as powerful as the Father and the Holy Spirit is as powerful as the Father and of Jesus. And they're the same in substance. Everything that it is to be God, the Father is, Jesus is, and the Holy Spirit is. So in terms of uh, their, their being, they are uh, exactly equal, but in terms of their function, they do have specific and different roles. Now I want to illustrate this by taking us uh, over to First Corinthians 11 in First Corinthians 11, and this passage, If if you turn to it, you'll you'll say, where is he going with this? Because, you know, at the top of that passage in my Bible, it says head coverings, and it's talking about women wearing head coverings and so on, and you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with the Apostles' Creed? Well, in verse 3, it says this, (coughs) and Paul is talking about uh, the role of men and women, He says, I I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, one of those statements is not like the others, in terms of uh, being controversial. I don't know if you can guess which one might be more controversial. he starts out and he says, the, the head of every man is Christ. Well, any Christian's gonna agree to that. Christians say, of course he is. He is our head. And then the last statement, the head of Christ is God. And we, and we recognize that, uh, yeah, that's kind of talking about their roles, right? Right? You have the father and the son and there there is a sense in terms of their function that the father is the head. But then sandwiched between these two non-controversial statements is uh, a statement that says the head of a wife is her husband. And Paul Knows that that's the one he's got to prove here. He understands that, and so he gets you kind of nodding, and then you say, "What did I just nod to here?" Uh, the head of the wife is her husband. So let's let's pull this apart. Let's tease it out a little bit to understand why he's saying this, what it has to do with the Trinity, and what it also proves about about men and women in terms of uh, their being and their function. Here he's talking about differing roles. And he's he's saying with uh, the husband and wife, the head of a wife is her husband. He is making it clear by the statement on each side of that, he's making it clear that that doesn't make her any less than her husband any more than saying that the head of every man is Christ or the head of Christ is God. Christ is not less than the father. Neither is the wife less than the husband in terms of their substance, their being. The the wife is every bit as much the image bearer of God as her husband is. She is just as important to God. It took as much of Christ's death on the cross for uh, the wife as it did for the husband. So they are co-equals here We're simply talking about function, about roles. And that's how it is when it comes to Christ himself, that he is equal with the Father in every way. They simply have different roles. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and our Lord. In Acts 2, in terms of our Lord, it says this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. There we see the Christ being revealed. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, in Jesus' time, to Jews and Jewish Christians, the phrase the Lord Referred back to the Old Testament, the highest name for God, Jehovah. So when you see the Lord in the Old Testament, that would be speaking of that name for God, Jehovah. So when Jesus' disciples referred to Jesus, not as rabbi, not as Jesus, But as Lord, they were attributing to him that which was radical in that day, and it still is, and that is that he is the highest God. And that, as we said last week, that's what got him in trouble. So we see with with the Lord, I want to give you uh, four applications. The first one in terms of Lord, everyone in the world, and so that includes everyone in this room, everyone in the world has a Lord. Your Lord is either the creator of the universe or it is Satan. You may say, no, you know, I don't follow Satan. I just don't really follow Jesus either. Jesus didn't permit for a neutrality there. You've got to serve somebody. It's going to be the Lord, or if it's anything else, it falls Into the realm of Satan. There is no neutrality if there is a Lord. Secondly, Paul made it clear that there will come a day when both groups will admit that Jesus is And so what it's saying there is there will come a time where every knee will bow. There will be knees that bow because in this life we have said, we know that you are the Lord and King of the universe and you are my Lord and King and so we will willingly bow our knee to him in that great day. That same time There will be those that throughout their life either followed the evil one or said, I am neutral and on that day, they're gonna bow their knee as well. Gives me no no joy, no pleasure to speak about that because they will not be doing it willingly nor will they be doing it savingly. It will be too late for them. They will simply be like Satan will be, admitting, you're the king, you win, and they will lose. If you're wondering where you stand, let me quote a a pastor that long ago preached a sermon that had a profound effect on me personally. In that sermon, he was uh, challenging uh, those that were in the congregation to make sure that every part of their life, including their future, they had given to Jesus. He preached, and he said this many times in the sermon, and I, don't, I couldn't tell you anything else about the sermon, but this is what pierced my heart. He said, if he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. You get it? if in your life you're holding back. And at that point, it hadn't ever occurred to me. I, I, I would, would have been a professing Christian at that point, but it didn't occur to me that, that I hadn't given him my future. And maybe that's where you are. If you're picking and choosing parts of your life that, yes, I'll give that to him. I will make sure that I'm going to get to heaven, but he can't touch this part of my life. I would listen to what this pastor said. If he's not Lord of all, he's not really Lord at all. And so... Our desire ought to be to come to that place where we can say in this creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son and our Lord. Meaning, yes, I want you to be Lord of everything. And I want to point out one more thing. Everywhere else in the creed, the confession is personal. Three times it says, I believe, I believe, I believe. It's all very personal. But here it doesn't say, He is my Lord. It says, He's our Lord. That's what we're professing. Catch that, that difference? Here's the point. That, that indicates that in following Jesus, we are separated from this world. We live in the world, but we, we can't be of it. So we're, we're in a sense separated from it. But we are always, when he is our Lord, we are always united with other believers and members of the family of God. You are not and you will never be alone If Jesus is your Lord, let's bow together. And so, Lord, we would would ask you to reveal to us, if we've been holding back, If we've been trying to play games with with you, remind us that there is no hide and seek with you. There's nothing hidden before you. And so will you help us, even in these moments, to declare, to believe, and then act on that you are the Lord of all of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now let me turn to the page seven, and like I clarified last week, uh, this version of the Apostles' Creed is slightly different than what most of us memorized. Uh, This is the version we are gonna be using from here on. And so I encourage you not just to recite, but to read. And in reading, to declare from your heart. So let's stand together and answer the question, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.